Tonight we continue our series, making our way through the book of Ephesians. And thus, let's read Ephesians chapter 2. We will read the whole of the chapter. The text for this evening's sermon is verses 19 through 22 because it's the very end of the chapter. I will not reread it. Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And now verses 19-22 through 22 are the text for this evening's sermon. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We end our Scripture reading at that point. As a congregation, we have a certain love for and appreciation of this physical building, this sanctuary where we gather to worship God Sabbath day after Sabbath day. The part of that 
is that there are many in the congregation who remember very well the building of this church that we call home. And it's served us well for 39 years now. We're coming close to that at least. And if we ever were tempted to take it for granted that we have this lovely sanctuary to gather each Sabbath day, God used everything that happened with COVID-19 and all the restrictions and limitations to give to us a renewed appreciation for a place to gather each Sunday for worship. And it may be worth noting that a year ago, we were in fact still outdoors in March. It was not till the beginning of April that we returned back to this sanctuary. So the overall point that I'm making is we love this building. We love this sanctuary. We appreciate it. But yet, as lovely as this building is, as meaningful as it is to us, it is but the dimmest of pictures of the far greater house of our God that is the church universal. That is the figure, the illustration that the Apostle Paul uses by inspiration of the Spirit here in this passage. He likens the church universal, that is the church gathered from out throughout the whole of the world, throughout all nations, to a building, to a house, the house of our God. And that is the main point of this passage. And it underscores the blessedness of belonging to the church of Christ. Because that is indeed the overall point that the Spirit through Paul is making here in this letter to the Ephesians. He's been emphasizing the, the unsearchable riches of Christ's grace toward us who are members of the church. And most recently, that included explaining that we who were sometimes far off spiritually, that is, those who by nature were Christless, churchless, friendless, hopeless, and in a word, godless, we who sometimes were far off have been brought nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to our God. We have peace with our God. And thus, we have peace with one another. So that it, whereas before our differences would have divided us, now we're all brought together into a blessed unity. That's a part of the blessedness of the church. And now, the Apostle Paul by inspiration is continuing in that same vein. He's continuing in that same thought when he comes to what he has to say in verses 19-22 through 22, where he teaches us that a part of being reconciled to God and made to have peace and unity with each other is that we are now all a part of the church universal. That is, the household of our God. And thus, the Apostle Paul introduces one of the important biblical illustrations for the church. There are a number of them. For example, we know well that Scripture likens the church to the bride of Christ. It likens the church to the body of Christ. And here, it likens the church to a house. It uses a figure from the realm of architecture. 
likens it to a building. And that's what we want to focus on this evening as we consider this passage of Scripture. So the theme for tonight's sermon is the church as the house of God. The church as the house of God. First, we'll look at its foundation. Second, at its growth. And then third, at its completion. And you could also call the third point its purpose. I struggled with which of the two to use. Both would be legitimate. It's completion or it's purpose. But before we get to that, we need to start with the foundation. And the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ is Christ Himself and Christ alone. And it's important that we state it that way, that it's Christ alone that is the foundation because there are others who look at this passage of Scripture and interpret it differently than we would or that we're going to tonight. And there are two main wrong views that we need to address briefly. The one is altogether unbiblical. The second is not preferable. The first view that we need to address is the understanding of Ephesians chapter 2 when it speaks of the foundation of the church is that it is the apostles and prophets themselves. And so, what we're drawing from here is verse 20. Verse 20, the Paul, Paul says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. How are we to understand that phrase? And this first view, the ro- view of the Roman Catholic Church, says, well, it's the apostles and prophets then who are the foundation. That is, they put an equal sign between the words foundation and apostles and prophets and are built upon the foundation which is the apostles and prophets. And the Roman Catholic Church then uses this to support their view concerning the clergy, especially concerning the the Pope. That it's ultimately the Pope that is the foundation of the church. And the foundation is really the authority of the Pope because according to them, you can draw a direct line of succession from Peter to the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And because this passage of Scripture says the apostles, that is, Peter was the foundation, and the Pope can be traced back to that, that means surely the Pope is the foundation of the church. Such an understanding, though, is an altogether unbiblical view of the church and her foundation. Because the Roman Catholic understanding makes the Pope to be a head of the church and denies the sole headship of Jesus Christ. So we reject altogether the notion and the view that says it's the apostles and prophets themselves and thus the church leaders who are the foundation. The second view that we need to address tonight is the view that says, well, Christ is the foundation, but the apostles and prophets are the foundation in a secondary sense of the Word. This is the view expressed in many commentaries, even good reform commentaries. And I will humbly confess to you, this was more or less my own understanding of the passage going into my study of it. It was only a deeper study of this passage that made me realize there's a better way of understanding it. This view likewise looks at verse 20 and puts an equal sign between foundations 
the foundation and the apostles and prophets. And it's worth noting, to be fair, that is grammatically acceptable to do that. This view recognizes, of course, Christ is the only foundation of the, is the, the foundation of the church. And they recognize it'd be preposterous to think otherwise, but because verse 20 says the apostles and prophets are the foundation, well, that must mean they are the foundation in a secondary sense of the word. Not because of anything in themselves. There's nothing inherent in these mere men that we could ever find to say these men are a worthy foundation, but rather they're the foundation in that they point away from themselves and they ultimately point to Jesus Christ so that it's their teaching concerning Christ. It's their doctrine of Christ that is really the foundation of the church. And while that view is acceptable, it's not preferable. I believe there's a better way to understand this passage. And that's this. Namely, that Christ is the only foundation of the church. And the apostles and prophets are the ones who lay that foundation by their preaching. And that comes out when we go back to that old reform principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. And we see what, for example, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 has to teach us. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, we read the following, according to the grace of God which is given unto me, Paul's speaking here, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the very last part, and that's really verse 11 at the last part, it's telling us very plainly the foundation is Jesus Christ. And what is more, the Apostle Paul says, there can be no other foundation. This is the only one you can build on is Jesus Christ. Where does the Apostle Paul come in? Well, he calls himself a wise master builder. He says he's laid the foundation. And he did that in and through his preaching ministry. And it's in light of 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 and 11 that we then understand Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So that when we read and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, we recognize Christ is that foundation. And when it speaks of a foundation, first of all, and then the cornerstone, it's not talking about two distinct, separate things. So you have the apostles and prophets as the foundation, and Christ being the cornerstone of the foundation. But rather, the text is moving from the general idea to the specific. It's specifying in what sense Christ is the foundation Namely, He is the chief cornerstone. Well, what about the apostles and prophets? They're the ones who lay that foundation through their preaching. And that too is a legitimate way to understand this verse when it speaks of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The idea is that they are the subject of the implied work of laying down that foundation. That too is grammatically acceptable. And they did this obviously through their teaching. 
So that's how we are to understand this passage. It's worth noting, simply for the sake of clarity, what's meant by the words prophets here. Apostles, that's fairly obvious. But the prophets here are not the Old Testament prophets, but rather it's referring to that New Testament special office that existed during the time of the apostles of a prophet. And we get our first hint that that's the idea from the word order. If it was talking about the Old Testament prophets, surely they'd be mentioned first. But it says, upon the foundation of the apostles, they're mentioned first, and then the prophets. Now to be clear, the word order by itself is not enough to establish. It's talking about New Testament special office of prophet. The main evidence is the rest of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians will continue to talk about these prophets. And in the other references in the book, it's, it has to be that the reference is to the New Testament prophets. For example, in chapter 3, verse 5, we read concerning the mystery that's been made known, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. That is, in the Old Testament, this mystery was not made known And then he adds, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. It cannot be talking about the Old Testament prophets. It has to be talking about New Testament prophets. Same thing in chapter 4, verse 11. He, the ascended Lord Jesus, that's important, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So, lumped in with all these other New Testament offices. We have prophets indicating that when we read of prophets in the book of Ephesians, we're talking about that New Testament special office. That's not the main point though. That's simply worth clarifying since we're going through the text. What is the main point? The main point is that Christ and Christ alone is the foundation of the church. That's what Paul is underscoring here. He speaks of the foundation. The foundation obviously being that lowest load-bearing part of a building. In other words, it's that firm and sturdy structure on top of which the rest of the building is constructed. And Christ is also called the cornerstone here. The cornerstone being the primary foundation stone that forms the base of a corner in a building. And now, admittedly, the whole idea of a cornerstone is not as common today. In our modern day of building, foundations are poured using concrete. We set up walls and pour the concrete right in there and then you have your foundation. There's no longer the same need for a cornerstone. But throughout the majority of the history of this world, Any architect knew that you had to have a cornerstone. That is, the architect, the builder, would take the biggest, firmest, most stable stone and set that in the corner. And everything would really be built on top of that so that this cornerstone would bear the, the weight of the two walls that were connected and built on top of it. But because it's really the first thing laid and everything's connected back to it, in a certain sense that cornerstone supported the entire mass of the building. So that underscores the importance of this 
cornerstone. What is more, the cornerstone served to give direction to the rest of the whole building project so that every other stone that's laid is measured back to where the cornerstone is laid. Everything else has to line up with that cornerstone so that it all fits together. And the Spirit here, through Paul, teaches us that Christ is that cornerstone. Which means on the one hand, first of all, Christ is the One who gives stability to the church. He's the One who holds up the church. He supports it. The church depends entirely upon Jesus Christ. And that's true in the sense that we depend on His saving work. It's the saving work of Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection that forms the the basis, the foundation for the, the existence of the church. And so too, it's Christ's continued work as ascended Lord that is the that we depend on as a church. If Christ is not sitting enthroned above, preserving His church, guarding His church from all of her enemies, the church would surely crumble. So Jesus Christ is the stability. He's the support of the church. He's the one holding everything up. But more than that, He's the one who gives direction to the church. That comes out from that other idea of a cornerstone because every stone in the church of Jesus Christ must line up with Him. He's the one who determines how the church is going to worship. How the church is to be governed. What the church should look like. What the mission and calling of the church is to be. It all is traced back to Christ and His will for the church because He is the cornerstone. And all of this underscores that Christ is everything to the church. Is that not what we are meant to see here? Is that not where the Spirit is leading us? He's reminding us that as a church, a church universal, a local congregation, we would crumble in an instant apart from Christ. The church is of Christ and through Christ and to Christ. And He alone is able to hold up the church and to preserve her against all the attacks that come upon it. And thus, we look to Christ. We look to Christ as a church to stand in the day of trouble. We look to Christ to help us in our time of need. We look to Christ for our guidance and direction for knowing what is best for the church because the church has as her one foundation her Savior. That also underscores the importance of having the right doctrine concerning Christ. For we need to go back and do justice to the fact that this is the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets through their ministry, through their teaching, so that in a certain sense, the foundation is the apostolic and prophetic doctrine of 
Christ. And if we get that doctrine wrong, again, the church is going to fall apart. We need a right understanding of who Christ is. Not just who Christ is as to His person, so that we have it clearly in our minds that He is has one divine being with a divine nature and a human nature, and how that all fits together, that's important. But it's more than just who Christ is as to His person. The doctrine that's essential is His saving work because you can never separate the two. Because when we're talking about Christ as the cornerstone of the church, we're talking about the sin-atoning, the sin-defeating Savior. It's exactly because of His saving work that He is the cornerstone, that He is the foundation of the church. And it's when we drift from the truth concerning Christ's life, death, and resurrection that the church will then be carried about by every wind of strange doctrine to hint at what the rest of the book is going to talk about. So the foundation of the church is Christ. And from there, the church is built up. That is, the church grows. And that's what we want to talk about secondly. We look now at the building and growth of the church. Verse 20, the Apostle says, and are built upon the foundation. Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Obviously, the thing that's being built is the church universal. We said that in the introduction. It's worth making sure that's clear that what's in view here is obviously not some physical building, but some spiritual entity. It's the church of Jesus Christ and not even the local congregation in Ephesus. Not the local congregation here in Redlands, California. At least that's not the main point of application. But the church universal gathered from throughout the whole world and throughout all time. And what is used to build this great house of our God are the believers. That is, you and I are like so many stones that are used to build this church. And we say that in light of 1 Peter 2, verse 5, for example. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, we read, Ye also as lively stones, that is, as living stones, are built upon a spiritual house. So it refers to believers as living stones, not as dead, lifeless, inanimate bricks, but as those who have been given new life in Jesus Christ. And stone by stone, we are gathered into the church so that tonight we can use the illustration of this very sanctuary that we worship in every Sunday. And these stones that are a part of the walls and a part of the backdrop behind me. Scripture is teaching us that we are these stones. Each one of us represents an individual one. And the church is being built as the stones are all stacked up and put together. And the one building the church 
is ultimately Christ Himself. Yes, He's the foundation. At the same time, He is the builder. And that comes out here in the passage. And that all the verbs that the Apostle Paul uses are passive. Verse 20, we read, and are built. The idea is you are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building... And again, the verb here is passive. Being fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are being built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. In other words, we're not the ones putting ourselves together, assembling ourselves one on top of each other, but we're, we're being built up. There's someone else doing it. If we ask, who's the subject? It's Christ. Because Christ is the one who gathers, defends, and preserves His church. But now perhaps you're thinking, wait a minute. I thought we said earlier that though the apostles and prophets are not the foundation of the church, they're the ones who are laying that foundation. So should not the architect, should not the builders be the apostles and prophets? Well, there we say yes in a secondary sense. And the key is, Christ is the master builder. Christ is the chief architect. He's the general foreman on the job. And the apostles and prophets, and really all who occupy the prophetic office, are as so many workers underneath Him. The ones through whom He carries out His work by their preaching of Christ. So Christ is the builder. And because He works in and through the preaching of the Gospel, the result is that the church grows. That's the language of verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. And and when the when the Apostle speaks of the church growing, he's not all of a sudden switching illustrations to that of a plant. Some have thought that. But the idea is he's simply using a word, the word grow in the sense of it, it's, it's being raised up. It's The building is growing as each stone is added one on top of the other. And it's the fact that this does indeed take place. That throughout the history of the world, the church is growing in the sense of God's elect people being brought to faith and incorporated into the church. That's really what stands out in this figure, this illustration that we've been using the whole time. You see, every illustration, every biblical figure for the church has some unique aspect that it emphasizes. For example, the body of Christ, the illustration of the church being the body of Christ emphasizes how we're all one in and through our head, Jesus Christ, and how each member of the church has a different function within the body. The bride of Christ, that illustration points to the relationship we have with our bridegroom, the intimacy that we're going to enjoy with him. And so, to this illustration, emphasizes certain aspects about the church that the others do not capture. And what this one captures that the others do not is the process whereby 
Christ is gathering His church. Because when we're talking about the body or the bride, we're looking at the church as a whole, as it's been completed, but the idea of the house of God, a building, well, we all immediately recognize that takes into account the fact that the church is slowly assembled together over time. Yes, there is one elect body. The the number of the elect has been set in all eternity, but those elect still have to be all carried together to form the universal church. So the church does indeed grow. And the church grows in two main ways. First, the church grows numerically as the stones that make up the church are multiplied. That is, the church grows in quantity. For the church grows when stone by living stone, elect believers are brought to faith, gathered into the church, and thus incorporated into this house. And this is what we see all throughout the history of the world. So that there's that numerical growth of those elect who have been brought to faith and incorporated into the church. But not only is there that growth from a quantitative point of view, there's also growth spiritually. There's growth in the quality of each of the individual stones as each individual stone grows from a spiritual point of view. That is, where Christ is at work to take each one of us and to mold us and to shape us and to fit us for our place in the church. It's as though He's polishing each one of us so that the illustration is not so much like these bricks or stones behind me, but now we think of a a beautiful stone. A brilliant jewel that Christ is at work polishing, making ever brighter, ever clearer, ever more beautiful so that at last we're ready to be incorporated into this building, into this house of our God. There's spiritual growth that takes place. So the church grows. And as the church is being assembled together, Christ the Master Builder puts us together in such a way that there is a resulting unity that's found in the church. And that each one of us is given a specific place to occupy And that unity comes out in the language that the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, uses. For example, in verses 21 and 22, verse 21 he says, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth. He doesn't just say all the building grows together, but it's all fitly framed together. It's harmoniously bound up together. It's all joined in a suitable fashion. Likewise, in verse 22, in whom all the in whom ye also are build it together. The idea of being joined as one. There's a unity that comes out in this figure, in this illustration. And ultimately, that's because we're all connected back to the cornerstone. And that's what Paul teaches us here in those two verses that we just read. Notice how both verses 21 and 22 begin. In whom? In whom all the building fitly framed together. In whom ye also are builded together. It's in Christ that this is true. Because every one of us is connected to Him. We're in union 
with Jesus Christ. And that's where the reality is far greater than the picture. Because if this church building that we're in had a literal cornerstone, we could say, yes, every other stone is in some way at least indirectly linked back to the cornerstone, but the further you get away from whatever corner that would be, the less the connection becomes. But it's not so with the reality. It's not as though some of us are right next to Christ. We're closely united, but others are pretty distant, pretty far away, and the, the union is pretty weak. Not so. But every one of us is united directly to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Connected back to the cornerstone Himself. And the result is that we are all then connected to each other. And that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about being the building being fitly framed together and being built together. So we all have a specific place that we occupy. And here we have to move beyond the stones, the bricks that make up the walls, but we have to take into account every part of the church. From the lights to the doorways to the clock to the railings to the carpet and every other part of the building. We need all the different parts. And everything serves a specific function in the church of Jesus Christ. So that the unity, so that the diversity of the church ultimately serves the unity of the church. If all the stones were identical to each other, yeah, you could build something, but it would not be much of a church. You need all the different parts. And you need them all fitly framed together, each in the right place for the church to be what she's called to be. And it's ultimately the work of the Spirit of Christ to join us together. And now here we can go back to the bricks, the stones. There is mortar connecting each one of these stones. And within that mortar, there's cement that serves as the binding agent connecting the two together. Well, That points us very definitely to the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the binding agent who keeps us connected to each other. United to Christ ultimately, then also united to one another so that there is this blessed unity in the church. And the wonder of it all, beloved, is that we get to be a part of this. And that's the message of this passage and this epistle to God's people. This was the message of Paul to the Ephesians. You are included in this. That's verse 22. In whom ye also... Back in verse 21, he made it general. In whom all the building fitly framed together. But he goes from the general to the specific. And in verse 22, he says, in whom ye also. This concerns you, Ephesian Christians. You're a part of this. And what a wonder that was for them. In light of what was true of them apart from God's grace. Because he's talking to those who were sometimes afar off. Those who were Christless, 
churchless, friendless, hopeless, and in a word, godless. You also, because you've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ, are now a part of this grand structure, this glorious house of God that's being built throughout all the ages. That's their blessedness. And that's the point of the whole book. The book of Ephesians emphasizes the staggering privileges that are ours in and through Jesus Christ. And what is so wonderful is that this is not just for the Ephesian Christians, but this is for us. This is for you and this is for me. Christ's Word to this congregation is verse 22, in whom ye also hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And what makes that amazing is that we deserve, on account of our sin, to be rejected. For as this book has taught us by nature, we were spiritually dead sinners. By nature, we were children of wrath. And thus, what we deserve is to be left out of this building project. So that when God in eternity was searching out for the right stones that He would use to build this house of His own, this grand and glorious structure, we deserve to be passed over. We deserve to be set aside. We deserve to be discarded. The stone's all chipped up and broken. This building material's no good whatsoever. And thus what we really deserve is to be cast into the fires of hell. But we were not rejected. Because of the saving work of Jesus Christ who was rejected in our place. And we put it that way because that's part of the biblical idea of the cornerstone. We sang about that. A part of what Scripture teaches us with regard to Christ being the cornerstone is that He was rejected. Rejected among men. Despised by men. So that His own countrymen rejected Him as Savior. The religious leaders of the day rejected Him in the sense that they wanted to kill Him. They wanted to destroy Him. This whole earthly ministry. He was rejected of the the powers that be of Pontius Pilate who condemned him to death. And much worse, he was rejected of God at the cross of Calvary. He became the object of God's wrath. He suffered what we deserve for our sins so that he being rejected, we might instead be received we who by nature have no business being incorporated into this house of God that we're talking about have now been redeemed. Have now been saved through the blood of Christ. Brought nigh to our God and are now 
through the saving work of Jesus Christ made to be these living stones. So that whereas before there was nothing but a heart of stone in us, we've been given a heart of flesh. And we are now gathered into this church. That's the blessedness that we're a part of this. But now perhaps there's a part of you that thinks, well, so what? I get to be a part of this house, this building. What's so special about that? Well, what's special about it is the purpose of this building. Namely, that this will be the habitation of our God once it's completed. That brings us to the completion of this church. The purpose of it. The goal. The end of it. And the final end and purpose of the completed church of Christ is that it will be the habitation of our God. That's verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, "...in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple." A temple being the, the dwelling place of some deity. Verse 22, "...in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God." A dwelling place for God. And so Paul here is drawing from the symbolism of the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem. That temple was the dwelling place, the habitation of our God. And now to be sure, as Solomon pointed out when that temple was completed, such a building could never contain the Most High God for He's omnipresent. But yet, God was pleased to dwell in the midst of His people. And that temple pointed to that reality that He he lived with His people. He had fellowship with His people there in Jerusalem and there in the land of promise. And Paul is drawing from that symbolism and applying it to the church. The church is the house of God. His dwelling place. His habitation. And that will be a true, especially when it's completed. It's true already now in principle, to be sure. For after all, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 teaches us that the Spirit of Christ dwells in each individual believer. So that from a certain point of view, we are His dwelling place as individuals. Likewise, the same can be said of each local congregation. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. The Spirit of Christ dwells in the, the local congregation. But when the church is finally all brought together, when this church is completed, the last stone has been put in place, then in perfection, God will dwell among us. We will be His sanctuary, His temple. And that's what makes us special. That's what makes us utterly astounding. Because imagine for a moment, if we can truly press this illustration, imagine 
that we were in fact these stones that make up the walls. Stones with eyes, stones with ears, so that we can observe everything that goes on in this sanctuary. And now imagine Jesus Christ coming into this sanctuary. And as those who are the stones along the walls, we have opportunity to gaze upon Him in all of His beauty, in all of His radiance, in all of His glory. We have the opportunity as living stones to hear Him speak. Hear for ourselves the voice of our Good Shepherd. Hear what He has to say to His church to His beloved. Every one of us would want to be one of these stones. We would want nothing more than to be a part of it. Even if the only thing we could do was just sit there for all eternity basking in His glory and His beauty. And that's just the picture. The reality is that we will not just be stones on a wall only ever seeing, only ever hearing. But we will be there in body and in soul with God Himself dwelling in our midst in and through Christ. We will fellowship with Him. We will worship Him. Because He will come and dwell In our midst, we will be His habitation. And that's what we look forward to. That's our hope. And since we look forward to it, it behooves us that we pray for this. That we pray for the completion of the church. For the gathering of the church. And understand, that means praying that others be led to Christ Because if this grand structure is ever going to be completed, that means all the stones must be carried together and assembled. That is, God's people, His elect people must be brought to faith. They must be gathered into the church. And therefore, we pray that God will work by the preaching to accomplish that very purpose so that others are called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So that the church continues to be built up and continues to grow. And as we pray, we may do so with confidence. Because beloved, this building, this house of God, will certainly and infallibly be completed. will be completed over against all the opposition that stands in the way. For there is indeed opposition. That was true, for example, when the temple in Jerusalem was being rebuilt. We read about that history in the book of Ezra, how the enemies surrounding the people who returned from captivity troubled the workers, how they tried to undermine the work, how the workers even had to carry swords on account of the the danger. But yet... That physical building was indeed completed according to God's Word. And so it will be for the far greater 
house of our God. The church universal. Yes. There are enemies who stand opposed to this building project who do everything they can to prevent it from happening, to hinder the work that's taking place. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it seems they're going to be successful. The world is getting increasingly hostile toward Christianity. The church is but a remnant, a little flock. And we sometimes think, how is this ever all going to be assembled together? Especially when within the church itself, we experience the pain of the tearing apart of the body of Christ. Sometimes we're tempted to doubt. Will this house in fact be completed? Are we going to be missing a stone or two at the end of it all? But over against that thinking, this passage reminds us it will be completed. Why? Because it's built upon the foundation of Christ. Because Christ is the One who is building His church in and through the preaching of the Gospel. And He will see to it that every last stone is brought into this church until the last one is finally put in place. And then He will return. And then He will truly make us His own habitation and we will enjoy life with Him for all eternity. That's our confidence. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for this Word and for the blessedness that is ours as a church. As those who are part of the church universal being gathered from throughout all eternity, throughout all time, rather, and throughout all the nations of the world. Father, bless the work of the church to continue to proclaim our Savior Jesus Christ and use us as workers in Thy hand, as laborers, for the sake of this great building project that's been play, taking place from the beginning of time. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.